Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Roger Rabbit on the uh, you know in the pocket of uh, 
of the photograph. Like this, this, this isn't this is a whole new way of of following this team. How did you do it? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of in between college classes, just hanging out, and I had seen that Brody had tweeted, you know, welcome Carlos to the family. Um, he was in Beltran's office with uh, Allard Baird and Omar Minaya standing next to him. And, you know, I kind of remembered that um, these kind of situations have popped up before, mostly with the NBA, actually, where, you know, there's a, a harmless picture or a tweet sent out from from a, an executive's office and there's some, you know, whiteboard in the background or a piece of paper and there's, you know, some uh, confidential information like a free agent target or a trade target or something like that. Um, like I remember once with the, the Orlando Magic posted their draft priority list uh, and that blew up on, on Twitter. So um, I've always kind of thought to just check, you know, there, there are papers lying around on this table and I was, you know, always thought to, to check it and um, I just happened to zoom in and, and see the, the faint would look like a J and some letters and a Y, so assume Jerry and then and clearly an N and so Jerry Naren obviously um, I, I knew the name, he's been a big league manager in the past and had just stepped down from his post uh, as a coach on the, the Arizona Diamondback staff um, so I you know, went in and I searched Jerry Naren's name on Twitter because the tweet had been up for uh, no, no fewer than 30 minutes uh, so I was sure that someone had had uh, unearthed unearthed it already. Uh, you know, I follow quite a few people on Twitter who who have known I, I know do that kind of stuff where they you know zoom in on um, you know a player's bat with the, the name on the on the barrel. It's you know something funny or you know a player who had been traded. Um, so I was sure that this had been you know circulated already and it hadn't. Um, so I. I just took a screenshot and, you know, changed the orientation so it was facing straight up and um, kind of took off from there. And, you know, a lot of the other uh, Mets beat writers, you know, who do this full time for, for their job that you know, picked it up and, and uh, thankfully credited me for, for doing it. But, you know, I, I, did, I did feel weird kind of taking credit for it because it was, it was out there and anyone could have uh, picked it up and, and, and posted it. Um, you know, I didn't feel like I did any special, you know, working of sources, obviously, to, to get the information. But, um, you know, that's kind of what happened. And uh, I think it was uh, either the New York Post or, or one of the other uh, papers did a more in-depth um, look into the situation, contacted Naren himself, who didn't even know that he was being considered for uh, the bench coach position. Uh, and then it came out that um, that they were indeed considering him for that position, and uh, will either get interview or will be interviewing him soon. So, um, kind of a funny funny thing that's happening that that a lot of people have brought up to me recently. Um, but you know, if if they don't actually end up hiring him as the bench coach, it'll just be a little footnote in in Twitter history, I guess. Well, it is fascinating and funny in that, like, nobody within the Beats, whether it's National or the Mets Beat, really thought to, to do this and thought that this was the next step. And by, you know, you thinking about, oh, yeah, that's right, the bench coach, um, 
you know, like nobody had this scoop. Nobody had their sources, you know, of who was really being considered. All of a sudden, that's like you set off that in-depth, like you, like you said, you know. Um, it, they weren't doing that until they, they really started to dive deep because they were because you tweeted it out. And, and I know John, you know, like you said, people referenced you. I know that John Heyman, I, I can't remember whether he said your name, but, you know, they, they were referencing it. Uh, when talking about the bench coach position on WFAN. So it is just fascinating the way that everybody gets set off. And it, it kind of reminds me in many ways just how unprepared it seemed like the beat was for it and also how unprepared the Mets were for it, uh, kind of in, in similar fashion uh, to the way Sandy Alderson was unprepared for the uh, Wilmer Flores fiasco. Yeah, and I think the the – I guess confirmation that I, I did something important, I guess, was uh, when Brody deleted the original tweet and then sent it again with the picture cropped uh, in such a way where you couldn't see that piece of paper. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, John Heyman picked it up and uh, was on SNY that night. They, and they did mention me by name. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's kind of what you were getting towards is that this is kind of what, uh, you know, news gathering in 2019 is where, um, you know, wherever you can find something and there are so many places to find something that's just, that's a source of news and a source of, uh, you know, the start of a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And um, before we finish up with this specific topic and move on to the rest of our night, let me bring on uh, Mr. Rich Spirago. Uh, uh, how you doing, Rich? Good, thanks. I've been enjoying listening. Uh, sorry to be a couple minutes late. And, and good evening, Mike. Good evening, Sam. And, and uh, especially good evening, Jacob. Thanks for joining us. Well, if you want to ride with uh, where we're going with this uh, before we, we go anywhere else, if you want to ask Jacob anything. Um, well, about the tweet, I mean, and, and the uh, the whole, uh, you know, sleuthing work of figuring out that they were, uh, you know, at least interested in Jerry and Aaron. I mean, that, that's quite a coup. Um, and I think it's a feather in your cap, you know, uh, Jacob, that would be. Um, considering that, the way you found the news out and the way you were able to get it out there and, you know, people who are in the clubhouse and, and in their, in their, the presence of the Mets brass on a daily basis, weren't able to do that. So all I can say is, you know, congratulations, uh, you know, it certainly made, made the news and, um, and good work. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. And I'll pass it over to Mike. I'll just say truck went up to find uh, to fans and aspiring writers and people seeking to make their mark in the industry, uh, bloggers, website authors, etc. Uh, Jacob, great job. Uh, truck went up. Truck went up to technology. Uh, as a teenager, I spent all my teenage years in the '80s, and and this was doing something like this was virtually impossible back then. Uh, now with the internet and this, that, and the other, it's a, it's an incredible time uh, for people with creativity and and, and 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 the want to really make a mark. Without the 
reliance on outside parties. How do you like that one? <laughs> exactly. Well said, Mike. And so since you were uh, finding a, a, a scoop regarding the bench coach, we're going to segue over to the bench coach names. Um, and, and, Mike, you and I were uh, talking about this earlier because I was, uh, you know, I, I tweeted out when I found out that he's the front runner. who the F is Hensley uh, Mullen. And <laughs> you, you – brought me uh, up to speed, which led me to realize that I actually may have a player card of his somewhere, you know, in my storage. Well, I, I mentioned that he came up with Bernie Williams uh, prior to the core four. He came up in the early 90s uh, before the strike season of 94. So we're talking 90, 91, 92. Uh, and he was a, he was a, a highly targeted prospect, an outfielder. Everyone thought he was going to be able to hit and make a dent in the major leagues, but he really didn't. Uh, had a brief career after the Yankees. He moved on to the Reds. Uh, but ever since uh, he stopped playing, he's been a coach ever since. And along the way, and it's been a long time now, uh, and along the way he's uh, he's earned himself quite the reputation. Uh, he, he's, he's very well spoken of throughout uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, insofar as uh, being a coach, and uh, I believe he was manager—he was definitely manager of the Netherlands in the last baseball classic. Uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure he was manager in the in the previous classic to that, but I'll, I would say he was. Uh, but he, he again, he's got quite a reputation going on for himself. Well, the Netherlands is always a pretty fun team to follow during. Uh, um the World Baseball Classic, especially considering, oh. like, you know, they, obviously they have a lot of people from Carousel, but uh, it seems as if the, the, uh, uh, the you know, the actual country of the Netherlands does get behind them during it. So that that's pretty cool, uh, even if usually oh. they, they do run to, into to put it, walls. To put it frankly, Netherlands has been a flat-out pain in the ass and everybody <laughs> in, in the Classic. I mean, they, they've done damage right, these right. last two Classics. Well, before we uh, we move on uh, to talk about uh, Hensley Mullins, I believe, am I pronouncing that correctly? Hensley Mullins, yes. Hensley Mullins. We actually have a, a, a call from what I, I believe is either a Westchester or Rockland County uh, person. Uh, hello, you are here on a Metsian podcast. Hello? Who Hi. am I speaking with? My name is Max. Max, Hi. what is going on? I love that name. That was my father's name. Oh, yeah. So uh, my dad is a high, diehard Mets fan. I am a diehard Mets fan. And I I feel like a lot of the younger generation isn't getting a lot of, um, like, the feel of baseball as it did in the 80s and the 90s. How do you think we can, uh, like, get um, more, like, more – Teenagers and more millennials to like baseball because they, you know, I feel like too many people like football and basketball, and I, honestly, I think these sports are boring. <laughs> well, uh, Jacob, do you want to take that one as the the, the youngest? <laughs> oh, of, uh, wait. By, by the way, Jacob, sure. I follow you on Twitter. Can you please follow me back? I've been following you for a while, and whenever you tweet, I get a notification. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. 
uh, thanks for the follow. Yeah, shoot shoot me a uh, shoot me a DM. I'll, I'll shoot you a follow back. Um, okay. I uh, no, it's a good question. I guess I'll I'll take it as the resident young person on here. Um, and I think it's something we're gonna touch on later in the uh, in the the show. But you know, making um, you know minor league baseball games accessible and making major league baseball games more affordable, I think is is the number one step. Um, and I, I don't think that um, the executives in power in Major League Baseball right now are doing everything they can to to spread the sport um, between rising prices of, of tickets and um, you know blackouts and the way they police their content online. I mean, you look at the NBA; um, they they're publishing you know a clip of every slam dunk and, and uh, big block or whatever. It's all over social media. Um, you don't really see a lot of that um, from. Uh, baseball, or, or at least to the same extent. Um, so I think, you know, exposing it on on social media to the same levels of of the other sports is uh, certainly a, an important step in the right direction because uh, I just don't see it right now being up there with sports you mentioned like basketball and football for sure. That that flips are like cool and okay. Do you think they could be like the equivalent of like? slam dunks and and like uh t- touchdown dances i i feel like they have the potential to be just not not enough people are actually executing the bat flip correctly i feel like people are just either like throwing the bats or just like it like, like i you know i i feel like it bat flips could be really cool and they're just like not right now yeah i'm sure you know it's it's uh a part of the game where players can show their their expression and emotion um, when you have certain people like broadcasters or, or older players involved in the game who um, you know may get upset at that those kind of uh, displays of emotion, I, I don't think that helps the game at all. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's good for the game. I don't know if it if it's on the same level as like a slam dunk in basketball, um, but you know it, a, any part of the game where a player can express his emotion, I think, is uh, definitely something that should be promoted. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to spring training. Can I uh, do I, can I guarantee you that I'll see any of you there? I can't say whether or not I'm going to be there yet, but uh, round the horn, Mike. If I'm there, I'm there by accident. I'm thinking about going, but not, not for sure. Yeah, I I, uh, I I have been going the last few years. I'm not sure if I'll make it down this year, but uh, always a great time in Port St. Lucie for sure. Yeah, well, last year I I went and I spoke to P- Peter Alonzo, and it was such a nice experience. <laughs> he was so he was so humble, and I I I he said I asked him like, what's the key to success for hitting? And he said that you know you always have to want it more than the other the other guy. You always have to want it more than the pitcher. You always have to have that inner determination. And so whenever I watched him in a big spot, I always thought of him saying those words and he, he came in the clutch a lot. And I, you know, I hopefully, hopefully I will be able to, you know, repeat these words, repeat these words to him. And, uh, he's, I, I, I love him so much, you know? <laughs> well, he certainly uh, presented uh, a good follow-up to you meeting him uh, after that. Uh, what a year he had, Max. And we, we uh, greatly appreciate the phone call. Do me a favor and uh, shoot me a tweet as well at 
the underscore Sam Maxwell so I can tag you for this uh, this show, man. Wait, okay, I'm looking, wait. Underscore. <laughs> wait, I'm right here. Underscore uh, the, the, the underscore Sam Maxwell. And I'll I'll make sure Max. that uh, any okay. any anything uh, regarding this podcast we're gonna we're gonna sh- you know make sure to tag you, bro. Okay, thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Max Max Cohen, twenty forty. <laughs> yes, vote for me. <laughs> well, may, maybe by Pete Alonzo will be a, a first ballot Hall of Famer, and you guys can run on the ticket together. Yes, that would be amazing. <laughs> Max, we appreciate the phone call. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Good night. That's uh, that's great. Uh, Glad glad to hear from Max tonight. And um, Rich, I'm going to go over to you next uh, regarding his question. Um, What do you think needs to be done to make this a more viable uh, sport for for the future? You know, to, to who wants uh, to be entertained somehow? Well, you know, if, what I do is I go back to what made baseball great in the first place. Like why, when I was growing up, why was it the sport, right? And when my parents were growing up, why was it the sport? Well, a couple things come to mind, and, and these are not new thoughts. First one would be, and I think Jacob may have said it earlier, is affordability and accessibility. I mean, that, that was baseball's edge, you had 81 home games for the team, and you could get a ticket in the upper deck for, you know, for what? Back then, you know, everything's relative, but, you know, back when my parents were growing up, you know, $1.50. When I was growing up, what, five, six bucks? Um, so it's affordability, it's accessibility, and I think that's number one. And the other thing is, you know, and, and, I, and I know this is also not a new concept, but, but this idea that you, you have to make the mark. I'm sorry, what? Um, you have to make the games available on TV to people who watch them. So, in other words, um, this idea that the World Series starts at 8.20 you know, and ends at, at 12.30 in the morning, it's got to stop. And I know that's 9.30 on the West Coast. I totally get that. But you're not showing the people you, – you want to recruit the younger fans. You want fans that have staying power. You're not recruiting the younger fan by having World Series games on at 12:30 in the morning, so they, they've really got to think about that. I'm sure it's a revenue maximization thing. I'm sure Rob Manfred looked at that and said, if we start the game at 8:20, we make this much. If we start the game at you know at 6:30, we make this much. So we're going to go with that one. I get that, but I, I I truly believe they're being very short-sighted and penny-wise and pound-foolish. You have to think about the future of the game. I'm not the customer they want. You know, I'm a guy over 50. They, they don't want me. I, they have me already. First of all. They want to start recruiting the younger fan, and I, and I really think that those two things are a step in the right direction. And I'll close with this. I believe Washington this year did that thing where on Sundays for an upper deck ticket, they did it for a family. It was like $50 for a family of four. And what you were able to do was you got four tickets, you got a hot dog and a soda for everybody, and you have to start doing that. You have to start making these games accessible and available and the big edge baseball has is the quantity of games. So, so that's where I stand on it. You make a lot of great points, man. I mean, 
the World Series time frame is such a, a a major deal to me. And and uh, Mike, you know, to go off on that tangent regarding the World Series, uh, um, and I know you've been hearing, I've been hearing it uh, from other places. Whether I, I think it was either somebody on SNY said it, you know, one of either one of the the uh, three of them, Gary, Keith, or Ron, or even Steve, said something about having one game, like like a Saturday game at like four o'clock, and that would be a great idea. Get the family back involved in these. Uh, great point. Getting the family back involved. I'm, I'm just going to pick up where Rich left off because we're you know near the same age. I'm going to be 53 in February, uh, and you see. I raised a son, a millennial, who was born in 1990. He's spent his entire lifetime uh, uh, experiencing the steroid area, uh, you know, 12.30, 1 a.m. end times to some of these games. You know, uh, baseball has done everything possible to alienate an entire generation. Uh, And, you know, I always ask myself the question, why? And I'll have to go back and point my finger at at electing or hiring a former owner to the office of commissioner. Because <laughs> then all the priorities change, and, and everybody's in line with each other, and it's kumbaya, and let's push forward and, and try to squeeze as much money out of this as we can. Uh, as far as the start and stop times, you know, that's that's baseball selling out their product to the networks and letting the networks dictate what time they stop, they start. Uh, the other leagues don't do that. You know, football certainly doesn't do that. Look at their start times, 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 8 o'clock at the latest, you know. And, and we're talking about now, which is a three-and-a-half-hour, you know, contest. Baseball is not far off. So if, these, if they start these World Series games, and like you say, why not start a regular World Series game during the day on a weekend? You know, there's no reason why you can't start a World Series game at 7 o'clock on a, on a Sunday. None. Really none, other than the network saying, well, we can maximize our profits if we do it during prime time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and speaking uh, of which, they switched, they switched ESPN to 7 o'clock 20 years too late, but they did, even if it was 20, 20 years, years too late. late Something said 20 that years they, too know, late, they, they already alienated my son. That is why baseball, you know, right. from somebody coming from me, that is why baseball is not even in his top three. He loves football, basketball, and hockey more than ba- than baseball. They alienated an entire generation, and my son's going to be 29. You know, and I watched it. I watched the game alienate him. Yeah, and you know when it comes to baseball, I you know you cut me open and baseballs fall out. And there's also a, ball, a ballpark experience to, to speak of. You know the segregation of the fans with with the quote unquote moat between the elite and the proletariat. You know a regular fan can't go up to field level anymore and 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 you know ask for an autograph unless you have those seats that cost you know what for some other people. It takes a long time to save up that kind of money. That kid no longer can do that. You know, unless you sit there. You no longer have access to field level, period, unless you get pushed out all the way to the extreme reaches of the outfield. 
And unless ball players take it upon themselves to realize that and make an accommodation for younger fans and go out to the far reaches and, and the corners of the ballpark, you know, that experience is gone. Now you have uh, the season ticket holders being uh, privy to insider events, you know? But what about the regular guy? What about the regular guy who wants to bring his family, you know? When I was a kid, you know, I, I had I had run to the ranch. Shea Stadium <laughs> was my home. And the second I wanted to go down to field level to get somebody's autograph, I got it. Not every time, but, you know, if you were polite about it, I got the autographs. I got John Stearns. I got Darrell Evans. I got George Foster. You know, I got those guys. I got Rusty Staub. You know, just by being able to be there. But you can no longer do that. And I think that also detracts from uh, winning new fans. Uh, they, you know what? The newer fans, the newest fans, don't even know what it's, don't even know what that's like. Much less making it affordable for everyone. Uh, lot to say. I can go so many directions. You know me, Sam. So let's move on. You know this. This is um, why, Rich. I don't think we're going to be talking much about what the Mets are and aren't doing, because we've gone down the rabbit hole with the Wilpons. We've gone down the rabbit hole with seeing the same old, same old year in, year out. Um, and so we're talking about how you get youth. We're talking about the minor leagues. This, this, is, this is the fascinating uh, conversation to have right now uh, at this particular juncture when there's not too much going on with the New York Mets. So in what Mike's saying, Rich, that about the, the players are the ones that need to take it amongst themselves to uh, become more accommodating. Um, I think that, that, you know, while unfortunately there's only a certain level of, of um, parents' income level that can get a child to the field level, generally speaking, at least during the game, um, I, you know, like, for instance, Marcus Stroman is pretty good online about – uh, reaching out to the fans that reach out to him. And I know that, for instance, there was uh, uh, a fan that had just gotten a Marcus Stroman number seven jersey uh, right just in time, basically, for Stroman to change his number to zero because of, of uh, Jose Reyes. Um, and without getting into the Jose Reyes talk, just specifically regarding Marcus Stroman, and, and, and it, he seems to be rather – uh, understand his role as a ball player when it comes to both the fans of uh, of, of his age as well as the youth. Well, you know that that's a valid point. You know that the players could help out because let's face it, when the game is generating revenue and the game is popular, the owners are profiting and the players are profiting as well. So yeah, that that's certainly a good thing to do, and it's certainly a step in the right direction. Um, I, I wonder to what degree the players can impact that. They certainly can have somewhat of an impact. Like, look at Curtis Granderson. He would sign autographs before the game with his glove on his head. You know, he could do that. But that, how much more can Granderson do? You know, he, he's limited in that sense. He has to get ready for the game, as does every player. So, so sure, they could do more. But I still think the, the big impact would be 
by doing something with prices, by do like you know, we've been talking about that, and doing something with availability of the games to the fan. I, and I agree with everything Mike said. It, it has become a season ticket holder's environment. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm one, right? And so um, opening day tickets, I was on the phone with my rep on Friday, and I secured my opening day tickets because I have a special pre-sale thing that I could do. But what about everybody else? What about other people who aren't you know, partial plan holders or season holders? What about them? You know, They're basically locked out because what baseball is doing is they're saying, look, you're the people who you already spend. We think you have more money to spend. We'd rather focus on you than the 18-year-old or you know, the 24-year-old who is an up-and-coming fan, you know, maybe doesn't have as much money in their pocket right now. But instead of doing something to make the game available to them, what they do is they bend over backwards to accommodate the people who are already paying into, paying into the system. And I go right back to what I said before. It's a very short-sighted strategy because, you know, in 10 to 12 years, I'm not going to be able to do season tickets anymore. So, and who's going, to come in, who's going to come in behind me to fill my spot? Well, you know what? If you're turning your back on the younger fans, they're going to turn their back on you. And and I just I just don't get the concept. It's almost like they, they I think that's what baseball has done. They become very exclusionary. They've identified people who spend, and they, and instead of trying to get more people to spend a little bit, they're trying to get the people who already spend to spend more. And uh, it's an interesting strategy, and I don't think it's going to be a successful one. Well, it's kind of similar, Rich, to the way Hollywood has gone about spending money in that they're focusing the majority of their money on the event movies, the movies that generally are guaranteed to make money. Obviously, you're going to have when, – when, when you have a major misstep in those, those particular areas, that's, you're going to it, – it's that much more devastating because you're, you're putting that much more money. You know, it, 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 it's high reward but high risk. Right, right. You, you're not. They're not carrying a portfolio strategy right now. They're they're going after the fan who has shown an interest and is willing to spend, and they're and they're trying to get more out of that fan. But you know what? I I will guarantee you, that's a much smaller number of people. You're not diversifying your portfolio by getting a lot of people interested. And and you know, I have a marketing background myself, and I would tell you that that strategy is never one we've used in any capacity we've ever been in. So. Uh, there, again, there must be some model where Manfred is saying, look, we could maximize and, and think about it. If you're the Wilpons, you're thinking, of, or any owner for that matter, if somebody tells you we can go with a strategy that's going to make you money in 10 years or a strategy to make you money today, most owners or of, of any business will say, give me the one for money today. I can get hit by a Budweiser truck in two years. I want the money now. And so I get that on the one hand. But it's not an investment strategy, and it's and and I don't think we're too far down the line from it really starting to show its negative impact. And I know we're going to get to it later about the need to consolidate minor league teams. It's already showing its impact. Yeah, and uh, you know, Jacob, um, regarding. I know I had a particular place that I was going to go towards you, but I'm kind of spacing on that that uh, instance. But I, I I think that you know this this is the particular strategy. I mean, you know that that isn't working because Max was probably uh, that who we talked to. You know, he was curious about the youth, but but he was curious about the youth 
what sounded like he was coming from, how do I get my peers involved? And obviously you started, you, you started the conversation, you know, uh, um, after Max uh, mentioned it. Um, but, you know, it, it does, I, I, I think I was actually going to uh, ask you about Curtis Granderson. And to segue regarding, like, the way Curtis Granderson does interact with the youth, Curtis, unfortunately, for the rest of baseball, uh, in terms of reaching out to Max's peers, Curtis Granderson is, is, is an anomaly. He, he, he is a unique breed because not only, like Rich was saying, not only is, can Curtis, Curtis uh, can only do so much, but Curtis was constantly trying to do more. You know, where he was in the, uh, the, the at-back, um, he was in the, the, uh, the on-deck circle, and he was still putting his fist against the fence to give a, a, a fist bump to a kid who was just standing behind there uh, while he was supposed to technically be preparing for, for the at-bat. But he was, he was doing it while also recognizing his impact on the youth of baseball. And, and you know, that you need more people like Curtis Granderson because when he couldn't do more, he still tried to. Yeah, and, I mean, it's a tough situation because, you know, the, the players who exist in Major League Baseball are what they are. And, you know, I guess to an extent you could tell them, sign more autographs before games or something like that. Um, but you can't really change someone's, you know, persona per se. Um, and, you know, the thing that I keep coming back to is that the league has to find a way um, and I really think, you know, they're operating against this because it's what's making them more money. But I think in the long run, like you're talking about the long run, um, they'll be more successful if they promote, you know, competitiveness between every team in the league and disincentivize, um, you know, not spending or not going all in. You know, if if uh, I'm a up-and-coming fan of, baseball and I live in Detroit, why would I get interested in the Tigers? Because they're awful and they have no, you know, uh, exciting players on their team. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I view it is that um, just as a whole, they have to kind of, and I guess if the players association can come to an agreement with them, because I think that's where we're trending in a couple of years is um, some tense labor relations. Um, you know, you can't have a league where, um, you know, only a quarter of the teams that you can count um, are seriously contending for, for winning in baseball because, uh, you know, no, no fan wants to watch their team. Even if, even if, you know, the team tries to sell you on, on a rebuild and, you know, trust the process, all that, um, you know, no fan wants to watch their team lose consistently. So let me ask you, and I know we've talked about this before, Jacob, but you were a Mets fan because your dad was, right? Yeah, yeah. So regarding that kid who may or may not become a Tigers fan, do you think baseball is leaning on, uh, you know, hereditary baseball too much? Probably. I mean, I think that's always going to be there, but at a certain point and as the years go on and – you know, there's a generation that grew up with baseball as their second, third, maybe fourth, um, you know, favorite sport. You know, you're not going to have that anymore. So, um, you know, you, 
that that has to be reignited some way um, because you know the the classic you know dad getting their son into baseball or daughter or whatever um, that that won't exist if if the the dads even didn't even or the moms didn't grow up on baseball themselves. Fair point. Um, so, Mike, uh, with that, let's segue over to the minor leagues. Now, you know, I I haven't, like, I've been hearing little whispers about it, and I know, like, we've gotten some serious, you know, uh, uh, concrete news about it, but, you know, I haven't been able to read a full article on it. And like we, we discussed, you know, I said this to you earlier today, and you kind of really well-roundedly explained it to me, and if you could, for for our audience and me and whoever else may need it, uh, if you could explain what's going on going forward with Major League's affiliation with Minor League Baseball. In a nutshell, they want to contract Minor League Baseball by upwards of 40 teams. I believe the exact number is 42. I'm not reading anything at the moment. Uh and and this is going to impact the rookie leagues, the short season leagues, uh, the the most and the hardest. Uh, and, and that's not to say that other teams and other leagues might get, you know, excluded or included into the new mix. So what are we saying? Uh, you know, baseball is is basing their grievance on on the contention that uh, there's a lot of. Uh, unfit facilities in minor league baseball. And, and to that point, you know, they have a point. Uh, you know, when the Cyclones came to Brooklyn, I believe it was 2002 uh, that I took a drive up to Oneonta to see the Cyclones versus the Oneonta Tigers. And, you know, that place was woefully uh, – under-equipped to be an affiliated member. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot, there's been many complaints of Cashman Field, a former affiliate of the Mets out in Las Vegas. Even though they moved into a new stadium, Cashman Field was notoriously known for being uh, a woefully equipped minor league facility, especially for a A team. And that's why they had so many, uh, you know, parent clubs along the years, because everyone was looking to dodge out of that player development agreement that they would sign for two either two or four years. Uh, and the Mets wound up with them because, you know, we ran out of options. And when that happens, baseball matches up the remaining teams. Every September is what's called the open period. And that's when these PDAs are agreed upon in two or four year increments. Uh, you know, but baseball also says that, you know, we're, we're maintaining and we're paying players, that have no shot, that realistically have no shot at ever making the major league. So why are we paying for them? Uh, and there's something to be said to that as well. I mean, they make make salient points. They really do. And, and and I'm not so sure that this isn't, you know, just like global warming. Nobody can really figure this one out one way or another. But it, it's working. It works in cycles. This isn't the first time that minor leagues have undergone a reorganization or an expansion or a contraction. Maybe this is just the latest in a cyclical, you know, uh, condition that minor leagues have been under. Uh, there's been a, a, an agreement 
in place since 1903. So we're talking well over a century uh, of this relationship. Uh, it went underwent a, a vast uh, overhaul, the agreement that is overhaul in the 60s. And, and since then, it's been pretty much uh, the same and steady as she goes. Uh, baseball also makes a point that, you know, so many teams have come and gone within the last few decades uh, that it's made travel amongst teams, uh, you know, very onerous and costly. And they're looking to trim those costs as well. And now the cry to increase, you know, minor league baseball player salaries, you know, this all plays into into their premise as to why uh, minor league baseball should be contracted. Uh, and they're basically, basically, you know, taking a hard-line stance and they're telling uh, other teams and cities and locations and municipalities, look, for me, own minor league, go independent. Uh, and there's also a plan for what they call a dream league, uh, which is a very is going to be a very loosely uh, run uh, circuit, I guess, with a very uh, loose affiliation with Major League Baseball. Uh, otherwise, all these costs that minor league teams, uh, you know, they will all incur these costs on their own now. If you're an affiliated team, the parent club takes care of uh, player salaries and and staff and you know managers, coaches and and things of that nature, whereas the the host city, the host team, the host owner is responsible for the concessions and upkeep of the park and all that stuff. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how far MLB is going to go with this or get with this because you have a lot of municipalities who pumped in a lot of money to a lot of these ballparks, be it upgrades or new ballparks. I mentioned Cashman Field. Well, they just moved into a brand-new ballpark, uh, and, and that was footed by the municipality. So where does that leave them? Uh, you know, and, and maybe Jacob can speak to this. I hope you will. I'll, I'll transition to you. You know, the plan for the Brooklyn Cyclones, the New York Penn League is on is on the hit list. They're looking to do it with the New York Penn League, the Appalachian League, uh, and, uh, you know, other teams. Now, the Brooklyn Cyclones are an exemption. The last I heard was uh, they're looking to fold Binghamton and make Brooklyn the double-A affiliate. Uh, how that is going to work, I have no freaking idea. A, because they're looking to contract the Staten Island Yankees. Now, when the Yankees wanted to move their AAA affiliate temporarily into Newark while they refurbished the stadium in Scranton, the Mets blocked it based on territorial rights, which were they were more entitled to do. Now what's going to happen if they contract the Yankees and the Mets – you know, uh, are attempting to bring their double-A affiliate to Brooklyn. Are the Yankees going to block that? Is is, is the territorial rights going to be uh, bypassed or overridden? How is that going to work? And are they going to have to make upgrades to MCU Park to facilitate a double-A crowd? You know, because obviously the talent level is going to go up and they're going to have higher expectations. So, you know, I don't know what the plan is. I don't agree with it, but at the same time, this is very cyclical in the world of minor league baseball. Teams have come and gone. Uh, it's a shame that some old uh, legendary teams like the Chattanooga, Chattanooga Lookouts are, are involved in this and, and potentially face folding. You know, maybe they will get together and, and form independent leagues. I, I don't know. I certainly hope so uh, because one of my main priorities as soon as I retire is to 
buy or, or, or build a fully customized van, drive the country and go see baseball games, and now they're looking to take upwards of 40 teams away from my itinerary. So, Jacob, I, I would pass the baton to you, please. Yeah, and, you know, obviously all um, valid concerns, and, you know, you think about the tons of uh, communities that are going to be affected um, by cutting out 42 teams. Um, there are tons of cities in America where, you know, it's maybe um, two, three, four hours to the closest major league team, and to be able to go to a minor league game, uh, pay 10 bucks, get a, a seat, sit behind the dugout or, or wherever, uh, and, and, you know, see future major league players, you know, that's that's something special, and that's that's a, an avenue for, for many young people to get interested in the game of baseball. Um, that's not even mentioning the, the employees who, who work for these teams and um, you know, it's, it's something special to say you work uh, for a baseball team. Uh, so definitely uh, certainly be lots of, of repercussions from, from this uh, decision. Um, I, I don't think that your, your concerns with the Cyclones are, are um, you know, will, will 100% come to fruition. If they do become a double-A team, I think they can more than handle handle that there. Um, I mean, their facilities are, are probably one of the best in, in minor league baseball, and I think they, they can seat um, around 8,000 people, and considering that uh, most minor league games don't, don't draw anywhere close to that, I think uh, they'd be fine there. Um, and then in terms of I, – I think the big thing is that the leagues are going to be restructured. So um, they're trying to cut down on travel expenses, so teams would be uh, – restructured in a way that they would be closer together. Leagues would be smaller. Uh, I think there would be a new, uh, I read a new mid-Atlantic class A league um, that would spring up um, so that they could accommodate uh, a shorter travel schedule. Um, But I I think what it comes down to is that there just hasn't been any movement on the front of uh, paying minor leaguers a living wage, which, you know, they're not getting anything close to that right now. Um, so the response here is basically just to pay fewer players. So um, is it uh, is it going to do something? Yes, but is it really cutting at the, the underlying uh, root cause of all the issues? Um, that remains to be seen, and I'm kind of skeptical if this is uh, the best course of action. Rich, when you hear this, uh, what, what's first on your mind regarding it? You hear, obviously, um, you know, we, we kind of went both the pros and the cons just now uh, uh, for, through Mike and uh, Jacob. So having heard all those details, what, what's your, your take? Well, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, that's my take. I, I think it's obviously a cost-cutting move. You know, we, we've talked about that, the travel and all. Um, and... You know, it goes back to, um, I believe it was Gene Autry, uh, former owner of the Angels, who said, why do I have a triple-A team? I have one guy who's going to make it and 24 guys to play catch with them, right? Uh, So, on the one hand, you you think about the number of guys in minor leagues, the number of guys who will ever sniff the major league. The ratio is pretty low. So, if if you cut some teams, and have fewer teams, fewer players in every organization, and fewer teams as well. You're probably upgrading the product a bit, 
making it that much more competitive. Um, and, you know, not as Keith always says, you know, we don't want to water down the product. So you're probably going the other direction. And at the same time, you're saving some costs. Okay. Um, I get that. Um, but, again, it, it's the same thing we talked about earlier. Is this a long-term strategy or a short-term one? On the – on the naysayer would say, well, minor league baseball is the most accessible thing, right? And so to those who want to recruit the younger fans, it's very affordable entertainment. If you take those teams away, you're pushing all the more young people away from baseball. So that is a negative. On the other side of it, if you're going to save costs and you're going to use that as a means to drive down costs and make the game more affordable for a fan, I could sign on. I'm very skeptical as to if these saved costs would go to reducing expenses and, you know, lowering the price of tickets. Not sure about that, but I'm open-minded to it. So I, I guess, you know, I, I guess it's like anything else. If it's something they're going to do, we have to see exactly how it plays out. I mean, um, if you're cutting teams just for the sake you don't want to pay as many players, that's bad. That, that really is. If you're doing it from the perspective of we want to upgrade the talent, we don't want to have it watered down so much, and if we can save money as organizations, we can drive down the cost, make the game more accessible, then it's a good thing. So I don't think there's a, a, a definitive answer to it. I think it's all what becomes of it. Mike, how does this affect the journeyman players like like, a, like the Val Pascucci's, if you will? Um, <laughs> is this a good thing for them because there, there is more of a of a, a market for a player to at least stick around for a little bit, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, with let's say the Val Pascucci specifically with the Bisons, you know, the Buffalo fan was familiar with him for years, uh, or or is this a bad thing? There's going to be less of a chance for somebody to stick around who who isn't as good as baseball, uh, you know, isn't as good at baseball as the ones who are trying to make. Well, let's see how the dust settles first. You know, that mushroom cloud is yet to go off. Uh, you know, when everything settles down and, and we see how some of these outcast teams realign themselves or reincorporate themselves, we'll, we'll, we can better answer that. What I will say, presently, you know, uh, baseball keeps a keen eye on the Atlantic League. And they're always scouring that league for players. Their con- uh, player contracts are, are consistently being bought from all from all member clubs uh, and, and placed in their minor league organizations, and some of them actually make it back to the major leagues. You know, it's a good place to, uh, you know, get a, a second win on your career, come back from injury, uh, just come back overall, or if you're that undrafted player, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I will say that baseball keeps a keen eye on the independent leagues, uh, both the Atlantic and the international league. Uh, and, you know, just going back to the minor leagues again, you know, the international league, uh, used to be a third triple A, uh, triple A circuit, you know, but they folded and the Pacific coast league absorbed, uh, some of those, uh, a handful of those teams and continued on, you know, uh, at this stage of the game, there's only three teams operating on the West Coast, and here we are calling them the Pacific Coast League. So, you know, things got out of whack, and, and perhaps a, a realignment and reorganization is needed. 
but, you know, Mike Piazza, look where he got drafted. Would a guy like him make it? I don't know. I don't know if he would have uh, stuck it out without affiliated baseball. You know, that's the question. Will people be willing to stick it out playing for non-affiliated teams? Uh, and and in that respect, I think you can rule out the Mike Piazzas, et cetera, in life because they will not. They will go on with their lives and, you know, join the matrix. So it poses a very, very good question, and, and you know, it, it sets a very intriguing condition, Sam. Jacob, I mean, this would be huge if 42 teams fold for the independent league. This would be huge for the uh, the independent league, excuse me, uh, fold in minor leagues. But for the independent league, it would be uh, major because you get all of a sudden uh, a rush of, of players, uh, all of which aren't going to try to, you know, go right to the semi-pros in Brooklyn. Um, and And like Mike said, some of these teams could even become part of the independent league. Yeah, that does seem uh, like it would be the case, and I don't know if if uh, under this structure the independent leagues would be a, a kind of a last resort kind of. I, you know, I, I do feel like there would be an avenue for those players to to find their way um, into a professional organization, um, whether it you know it be after their their first season or something like that. Teams could. Uh, be looking there, and I'm sure they will because, uh, like we, you just mentioned, there there there's always someone who slips through the cracks. There's always a, a Seth Lugo who slips to the 34th round, or a, a TJ Rivera that that um, you know doesn't even get drafted at all and still makes it. Um, so you know, shortening the draft to 20 rounds is is certainly going to eliminate uh, a lot of or, or eliminate the chances of a lot of you know, solid baseball players from, from uh, prove, being able to prove their talents um, because not not every draft position doesn't always signify talent. There's always um, things, agreements that are in place and, and, and uh, you know, conversations that go on between teams and players. And, you know, the guy drafted in the, in the sixth round may be there just because he's saving the team money. He might be a, a later round talent. So, um, I do think we'll be seeing uh, a big change in terms of, uh, you know, player development as we know it. Um, the, the structure of, of promoting guys through the minor leagues is going to change because simply there will just be fewer players to uh, to have in the organization. You know what, Tim, at the end of the day, and I think, you know, I, I, I get this from Rich. Ultimately, talent will rise to the top because baseball is also – talking about uh, shortening the draft as well by several rounds. If you're that good and you go on draft, eventually you're going to get found. You know, be it in a different form of minor league, uh, independent or otherwise. You know, if you're that good, you'll get found. If you slip through the cracks, perhaps you'll still get found. Talent rises to the top. You have been listening to a Metzine podcast, and we are so thankful you have. Uh, just pressing the reset button here. I uh, got a little disconnected briefly, but I caught the majority of that and got right back online. 
So it sounds like, um, you know, there's going to be obviously some jobs lost at some point, but that realignment is necessity. It's kind of like a forest fire. Uh, You know, unfortunately, sometimes it's needed uh, for replenishment. And, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. It's obviously the announcement's all preliminary, so we haven't had any concrete, complete concrete details yet. Uh, and it's going to be certainly very interesting to follow as we uh, as we proceed. You know, we've all been affected, I think, by the minor leagues at some point. I know my first Major League Baseball game ever was the Richmond Braves, uh, who uh, the stadium, I still believe, has a Brave on the outside of it, but I don't believe they have that name attached to it anymore. There's the flying squirrels down that way. Uh, and, of course, you know, uh, three of us have been affected by the Brooklyn Cyclones. At least three of us have been affected by the Brooklyn Cyclones in the way uh, how how marvelous of uh, baseball has been, you know, being back in Brooklyn and just coming off of a, a championship finally, you know. So there, it, there's there's a lot of uh, fascinating takes on this entire thing, and we'll, we'll see how it proceeds. So, um, yeah, guys, I, I, we're going to segue over to uh, uniform number 36, but before we do... Let's go around the horn, starting with Rich. Rich, is there anything else that you would like to talk about regarding the modern-day New York Mets? There is. Um, so, Jacob, I'm not sure I'm going to assume you did see the proposed trade that Jim Duquette put out there for uh, Starling Marte. And because it involves a lot of minor league players and with your role, I thought maybe you could just give us a thumbs-up, thumbs-down, or if you want to make a comment or two about some of these guys that Duquette proposed. And I realize it's not real. It's a proposed trade. But would you be willing to do that? Yeah, I did see it. Um, I, <laughs> I was a little shocked that that even made it to air. Um, because hey, Jacob, I think, Jacob yeah. I think you might be – Jacob, so I think you might be blocking your microphone a little bit. Oh, we good now? Uh, yeah, try one good. more time. All right. I'm not blocking the mic right now. should be good. Cool. Yeah, I've got them pretty clear. Um, so, no, I've, I've got you, Jacob. And let me read the names for the listeners, and maybe you can comment on it. Um, what Jim Duquette proposed was the Mets getting Starling Marte for infielder Andres Jimenez, right-handed pitcher Franklin Kilorme, um, whom the Mets got from the Phillies for Jubal Cabrera, in 18, and infielder Mark Vientos or left-handed pitcher David Peterson. So at least three minor leaguers. I've heard all these names. Um, I know Kiliorme had a, a uh, he had a, a Tommy John surgery, I believe, and missed the entire season last year. Very hard-throwing uh, prospect from the Phillies organization. So if you'd like to comment on that, I, I think you'd be uniquely positioned to do so. Yeah, so I I definitely would not pull the trigger on that trade as structured. I do really like Marte and, and I'm intrigued by him as a potential trade target. Um, but, you know, the, the, what was listed was um, at least two of the organization's top five prospects, um, according to the consensus. In addition to Kilame, who, you know, you don't know how he's going to bounce back from Tommy John surgery, but if he does, um, he has a chance to be kind of a, a high-impact arm, um, which is for – uh, one year guaranteed of Marte. You're giving up uh, 
minimum three guys who, who have their entire careers ahead of them. Um, so, you know, I, I'd be more inclined to use a, uh, a a trade chip currently on the major league roster, whether that be a J.D. Davis or a, a Dominic Smith um, or, you know, someone along those lines, in addition to maybe one other uh, prospect of, you know, Jimenez's stature. Um, but uh, packaging three or four uh, of, the, of the organization's top prospects in a system that's already, uh, as we all know, been – uh, decimated by trades made by the current administration. Um, yeah, I, I definitely would not be pulling the trigger on that one. I didn't think so. Uh, when I saw it, I was uh, my eyes popped out of my head, like, oh my god! You know, the, the, <laughs> the system is already, as you said, depleted, and and these are really the the top prospects I hear about. Um, you know, why in the world would you do that yeah, for one year? We, we all can't would include in trades. I'm sorry, Sam. Oh, I said we all know who Jim Duquette would include in trades. So, I mean, like, take it with a grain of salt, right? Exactly. Uh, Mike, what about you, man? Uh, I'd be weirdly interested in making that trade. If not only because Birdie, you know, he's already drawn his line of demarcation where he stands with the minor league system. It's either his draft picks or everyone else's, you know, at my disposal trade away. Uh, I, I think they'll be dealt regardless whether or not for Marte or someone else at some point. So do you, do we think that uh, right now Brody, when it comes to shortstop, is thinking to himself, and, and Jacob, I'll start with you on this, I know that I have an Ahmed Rosario. I don't, I, and, and I think I may know what I have with Andres Jimenez, but as of right now, you have somebody who could potentially be on the verge of being even more than he showed last year uh, in, in Ahmed Rosario. Uh, but if he is what he was last year, that's pretty great, too. But whereas Jimenez would be a completely resetting. And do you think that he's thinking to himself he can probably solidify a trade in a better way with a – major leaguer, a ready major leaguer in Rosario, or do you think that he's thinking he can get more with a cost-controlled player that's farther away from arbitration? Yeah, you know, to me, Rosario, I, I don't see any pressing need to trade him, um, because if you do, the step down is uh, either Luis Guillorme, who's shown um, varying degrees of, of capabilities in the major leagues, um, or an unknown like Jimenez, um, who probably doesn't have the the ceiling that Rosario does. And you know, when you, when you first started asking that question, I you know my eyes kind of lit up because I was absolutely in love with what Rosario started to show last year, um, especially from you know June, July on, um, the second half mostly. Um, really, you know, came into his own as a major league player for the first time. Um, was hitting the ball hard consistently, uh, wasn't chasing balls out of the zone as much, uh, and looked strong in the field. So, um, you know, I really think that the Mets have a breakout um, waiting to happen on their hands with Rosario. Um, and, you know, trading him only opens up another hole um, on the infield. I'd like to bring on another phone call. 
here. We have a 917 area code. Hello, you are here on a Messian podcast. Hi, this is Sam. How are you guys? Hey, what's going on? What's your name? Sam. We got uh, another Sam here. Is that correct? Sam, yes. Um, I happen to be a well, diehard Mets fan since, since 1964, and I really love your podcast. It's great for the young people um, to really uh, get to talk baseball. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, in, in my town, we could only talk baseball with each other, and we talked a lot of baseball with each other during school and in class and, and so on. But now with your podcast, I really love these podcasts. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to say. Um, I also wanted to tell you we, that we I wanted to share. Appreciate my, that. Thank you. Yeah, I also wanted to share some of my experiences as as a young person. Uh, my parents moved to 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 uh, a neighborhood away from Shea in 1964, and um, I used to ride my bike uh, with my friends on a on a, a Sunday afternoon, and it was the second half of a double header. And, and it was like two or three, four o'clock in the afternoon, and the old guys would come out with their box tickets, the yellow tickets, and uh, they'd give us the tickets, and the ticket takers would uh, would would let us in. Just it was it was a different day. I, I'm not sure how it can happen again today because young people need to be able to love baseball the way we did when we were kids. Baseball was the only game for us in those days, and I don't know how to get that back for our young people today. Yeah, you know, it's a big thing, a big part of what we've been discussing tonight uh, is is how you figure out how to get some of that feeling back, you know. Um, and and so, I, you know, it, it, it just seems to be uh, the, the theme of the night, guys. Um, and, and we're yeah, going to well, go, I'll, I'll, I'll go to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. In 1969, um, I was, um, you know, uh, a young teenager, uh, like a 12, 13 year old, and the, I, I, we watched. We came um, the, the the World Series games were during the day in those days, and we cut school. Don't tell our parents, but we cut school, and we went uh, to the, the platform that was in right field. The 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 token booth were not down down on the floor on the on the street level where they are today they were in the subway station so we were able to bring our bikes up position ourselves like nine o'clock in the morning on the platform and wait for the game to start and we watched Ron Suvota I he was my favorite player there Um, and it was there was just so many opportunities Uh, also getting autographs um, there were m- many more opportunities for kids to get involved. Um, not everybody was nice in those days, but the, most of the Mets that I went to were nice. I heard stories of my friends that were Yankee fans that didn't get an autograph by Mantle, and they were really upset about that. But uh, most of the Mets fans were really great. Um, most of the Mets players were really great in those days. Um, and I wonder if the players would make themselves more accessible to the fans if that would do it. Right now it's really tough for young kids to get balls and autographs. You have to fly down to Port St. Lucie, which I do every year with my with my family. 
but uh, people that can't afford that can't can have that opportunity. So I'm just wondering, maybe the players need to know that they need to be more accessible to the young people. I uh, wholeheartedly agree, and you know, you see it with some players who recognize that. I heard a story about Bryce Harper walking away and uh, you know not wanting to sign an autograph. And and Ian Desmond recognizing what that did to the kids and going over there, um, uh, which is, you know, after hearing that story, I think it was one of the uh, reasons why I was happy that they didn't sign Bryce Harper as as much as I, I know what that can do to the excitement of a, of a fan base. But um, I'll go over to Rich if, if you want. And, and sir, again, I, I'm on the highway right now, and I think I just had a, a trouble hearing your name. And I want to make sure, is it Sam or Stan? Sam, S-A-M. S-A-M. Uh, I, I like that name. <laughs> so, uh, okay, Rich, okay, uh, yeah. if, you, if you want to ask Sam uh, anything, uh, um, and, and Sam, if you, if you would also, I think you'll, you'll be an interesting person to, to hang around and, and talk to us about uh, uniform number 39. We're, we're going to go over uh, uh, the, the Mets to wear that in uh, uh, their history. So, but, uh, Rich, if you wanted to, uh, to throw Sam a question. Well, Sam, uh, thanks for calling. And, you know, I, I have a tough time disagreeing with what you're saying. Is What you said was basically accessibility, right? Accessibility of the game was different in 1969, like you said, where you could ride your bike and be on the subway platform. And tickets, you know, weren't outrageously expensive. You could go without your parents probably because, you know, if you had a few bucks in your pocket, you can get a, an upper deck ticket. Well, that's not the case anymore. Um, now, the Mets, I will say, they did do that thing this past year where they had standing room only for the, I think it was the entire season. You paid like, um, it was like $150, $120, whatever it was. And you had a standing room pass for every home game. So, so, you know, that's the beginning of it. The thing I mentioned earlier about the nationals, $50 for a family of four game ticket, hot dog, soda all around. That's the beginning of it. But, but I think what Stan is saying is that, Baseball, baseball, baseball. Well, why was that? Why? It was because you could get to baseball. Baseball could be a part of you. You could go to the game. You, you could do these things. You know, it wasn't once a week like football where they had to charge more for tickets. Baseball was a game that it was every night. You could go with the family. It was affordable. Um, and as part of that, the players were different back then. And I would say that's probably the same in, in any sport now. I think the players are less access- accessible um, for various reasons, but – I don't know. I don't know if you agree or disagree, Stan, but um, but to me, uh, you know, for a, a family to be able to go or for kids to be able to go, like 18-year-old kids to be able to go on their own, that's going to turn it around. That's going to make people love baseball again. Baseball has to use its strength, like I said earlier. Its strength is the 81 home games, the fact that it's a soap opera. It stays with you every day for six months. They have to use that to their advantage and make it accessible to all fans, not just the smaller subset of season ticket holders. That's my take. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I also, I also would hope that the players understand that they have a role to play in this as well. I know the front office does a lot, or does, or thinks <laughs> they, 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 they suppose that they do a lot and they could do a lot more. But I think the players could do a lot more. Uh, I have to tell you a little story that happened uh, in Port St. Lucie last year, which was actually a great story. Um, 
uh, Michael Conforto, my eight-year-old, actually, I have a little eight-year-old, even though I'm an older person, <laughs> but I do have an eight-year-old, and he's like a crazy Michael Conforto fan, and my 16-year-old went with me to Point St. Lucie, but my eight-year-old couldn't come, and uh, so we finally got Michael Conforto uh, to come to talk to us, and my 16-year-old put my eight-year-old uh, on FaceTime, <laughs> and um my eight-year-old Zachary, and Zachary was just looking. I said, Zachary, look, it's Michael Conforto. Say hello. And his face froze, literally froze. Like he was looking at God. He was looking at Michael Conforto. And Michael Conforto was laughing. And everybody said, so Michael Conforto said, Zachary, say something. And he was like silent. He was stunned. He didn't say anything. Everybody said, Zachary, say something. And then Michael Conforto said, Zachary, say, let's go. And then Zachary said, let's go. Let's go. It it oh man, unfortunately his call dropped, but uh what a story. I'm glad we got the majority of it and I hope he calls back. Uh Sam, if you're listening, call back. Call back. Um that, If I may. And and it seems and, yeah, Mike, I was about to say it seems Mike Mike uh Michael Conforto gets it. <laughs> I, I I would only add to the conversation and, and what Sam brought up. You know, I coached Little League Baseball for 10 years, 10 glorious years. Uh, but all around me, everywhere I see, you know, or as far as I can see, Little League is contracting everywhere you look. You know, and, and that's a bad sign. Yeah, that's that's really unfortunate. I, you know, you see that there used to be so many different leagues. And um, I'm Jacob, I'm guessing that you played Little League. Yeah. Jacob, uh, you there? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Back, back in my day, you know, 10 years ago, but, um, yeah, you know, little league is, uh, certainly fond memories for me. And, um, you know, it was always fun, uh, you know, playing a, a game on a Sunday afternoon and, um, having my, my dad, uh, you know, following the Mets game that was going on at that time, uh, on following on his phone on the game. Um, so it, it was kind of always a playing baseball and also, you know, following the game at the same time and uh, certainly brings back good memories for sure. Yeah. You know, it's rich. It's um, even, even though it is a bit of a depressing topic as we're talking about, the lack thereof in baseball might be not doing enough and, and might not understand what they need to do going forward. It's still, you know, Sam brings up a lot of good feelings tonight. You know, even though it's, it, it, it's unfortunately not necessarily, you know, we're long, we're, we're very nostalgic right now. Um, that's, that's a good thing still. And, and that reminds you that hope springs eternal, even in terms of, what baseball can be going into the future. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, th- I love the story Sam told because in 1969, you know, you would buy your $2 ticket and, you know, the, maybe the nice usher would let you down on the field before the game started to get an autograph and be super happy. Well, think about how that story plays out in 2019, just like Sam said you find a, a player willing to sign and then you say, Oh, can you stand there one second? I want to FaceTime my daughter or whoever he said they FaceTime um, using technology. 
it, you know, it brought the game closer to somebody who wasn't there, who wasn't in Port St. Lucie. So there has to be more of that. Um, I think it's it's hard to put it on the players and say you have to be available because at the same time, you're also telling them you're being paid a lot of money. You have to prepare. You have to stretch. You know, you can't lollygag around, but but yet go sign autographs. So I think that, that's a tough sell. I think it's great if they can do it. You know, the Conforto story obviously is great, and that's the kind of thing you want to hear. But I I put this on I put this on the owners. I, I put this on the owners for like Mike said earlier, for making the decision to start the game at 8:20 to maximize the revenue. And and again, I, I'll say one last time. It, it goes back to. If I told you, any of you three guys on the call, I could make you money today or I could make you money 10 years from now, I know what you're going to say. And that's very easy to say, make me money today. But on the same token, we have to start thinking bigger. We have to, this game has to start thinking bigger about its future. It has to pay attention to the warning signs that are out there. When you, know, you go to a, a middle school and you ask these kids what their favorite sport is and, what, 10% are going to say baseball maybe? You have to pay attention to that. You have to start making decisions that are more future-looking than present-looking. And um, that, that's where I think it is. Sam, um, if you are listening, thank you so much for calling in. Uh, we're, we're sorry that the phone call dropped. Uh, and also shoot us a tweet if you are on Twitter as well, uh, and that's how you, you – come to these uh, podcasts. We, again, appreciate you listening, but shoot us a tweet so we, we know how to get in touch with you because, unfortunately, it drops before we were able to uh, to muster that up. So, uh, yeah, guys, this is it's, it's really a fascinating tale that we, we have uh, discussed tonight. You know, it's, it, it's, been a bit, it's been a very cohesive podcast, very thematic, and uh, you know, it's, it's how do you how do you keep this game from growing and not becoming stagnant? And and uh, that that seems to be what baseball needs to figure out going forward. And, and um, we we appreciate both Sam and Max for calling and, and talking uh, of of these these crazy topics that that are you know it's it's ever fluid. It's it's uh, uh, the river. You know, whenever you get into baseball, like like Keith Overman once said in the uh, the tenth inning, I believe, of uh, Ken Burns' documentary, he said it's like joining the river midstream, and it it's just it's fascinating to look at how this this next phase of baseball's going to be going forward into the next decade. We 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 are coming into a new decade of baseball, and at some point we are going to reminisce about the decade that was for the New York Metropolitans uh, sometime in December. So please join us then and, of course, uh, every week for a Metsian podcast. Uh, we are going to segue out of modern baseball and talk a little uniform number 39. Uh, would have been great to, to have Sam's take on some of these players, but uh, unfortunately uh, we will not. So, uh, Mike, did you did you want to bring anything up in terms of uh, modern day before I segue out? Uh, did I? Did I? Uh, I don't know. In the Mets case, does haste make waste? They seem to be taking the methodical approach to this offseason. Meanwhile, the Braves, even though we don't want Travis Darno back, but the Braves have nevertheless moved on Will Smith, re-signed Chris Martin, and signed Darren O'Day. They're acting with conviction, you know, I'll spin it to you guys. 
and see what say you. Darren O'Day should never have been out of the Mets organization. He got booted one week into the 2009 season. I was very intrigued by his arm. And not only not only did they no longer have Joe Smith, who was the best arm coming out of 2008, but they also got rid of the most intriguing arm in their in, in their their bullpen. Uh, and also should have put Nelson Figueroa as the fifth starter that year. Uh, Omar Minaya started his – I mean, he, he made, there was plenty of moves prior to that, that that eventually led to his firing. But 2009 and the moves he made going into 2009 were obviously the, the, the official first uh, 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 puncturing of the stake in his heart, in his GM heart. Um, yeah, Rich. <laughs> well, yeah, I, <laughs> there are many stakes in Omar's uh, GM heart, as we say, but uh, but I would agree that was certainly one of them. Um, now, did you want to do number thirty-nine now? Yeah, I just will round that out. He brought up Darren O'Day, and just real quick, since this is a good segue, just let's talk about 2009 real quick, or just Darren O'Day specifically. Well, 2009 was the – Yeah, uh, 2009 obviously was a disastrous year, and um, and it was disastrous because they weren't supposed to be bad. They were supposed to be good. I think uh, Sports Illustrated, I think we all know, predicted Mets and Angels in the World Series. The Mets had a very team with guys like Delgado and Beltran and Reyes and Wright and, you know, on and on and on. And they had come close in seven and eight. And um, they had signed K-Rod, which the bullpen had been the problem. And you get the best closer in baseball statistically at that point. And uh, in terms of number of saves, obviously Mariano was still around. And um, and you figure you've got it figured out. And, um, and everything just went to crap. You know, Reyes got hurt in May in Dodger Stadium and never was heard from again. Delgado uh, had the hip thing going on. Beltron got hurt. Wright got hit in the head because they were out of it by then, but he got hit in the head by Matt Cain just to add insult to injury. Um, so, you know, 2009 was, was a season where expectation was, you know, a National League pennant playing in the World Series, and what you got was a 70-win team. And, uh, you know, and in my Met fandom, that's probably the year where I've never seen the wheels come off like that. Uh, You know, they've had bad teams. They've had worse teams, perhaps. But never before have I seen a team, a Mets team, have expectations in one place and have reality be so far away from that. You know, Jacob, I I think, like, you know, that that's the thing. We were talking off air before about optics, and obviously I don't think the Wilpons are going to be thinking what Darren O'Day means to the, to the fan base. I don't think Darren O'Day's name triggers most of the fan base the way I've just now been triggered thinking about 2009. But it's weird, the nuances of the Mets not making moves and other teams making moves that – that, that fall into place with the optics of who the Wilfons are and what they mean for the state of the New York Mets franchise. And a name like Darren O'Day just reminds you of a year where, you know, this all got substantially harder and worse because of Madoff situation. And 
mind you, you have to remember that the Wilpons spent a lot of money before that, but not well. And they didn't necessarily always put their money in the right place. And that's probably one of the reasons why Fred thinks it wasn't sustainable. Um, but this is the level, you know, that th- 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 this is the type of, these are the types of things that you want a franchise to pay attention to, to completely understand the details that fall into them not making moves and how when you see other teams bringing in somebody like Darren O'Day, who, especially coming off a year when the reason why the Mets aren't in the play, weren't in the playoffs was because of the bullpen, you, you, you haven't made, you've invited one player, Chris Shreveport or, whatever his real name is, I, I realized that you were already making a joke, Rich. I didn't realize Shreveport was an actual place. And then I, anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I, I find, yeah, so, I made a joke about Shreveport, the city of Louisiana, but I find his name Chasen. You know, it looks like Chasen, but it's spelled Chasen, as if, you know, bad grammar, C-H-A-S-I-N. I'm chasing someone. I, if he actually makes the team, I will have a lot of fun all year with that but this is what we're getting right now, um, and Jacob, it's like it's the optics we're talking about. Yeah, and it's kind of funny, or I guess not funny. It's funny from the outside, where you know the White Sox signed Yasmani Grandal in November, um, and then later that day, the Mets respond by signing Chase and Shreve to a minor league deal. Which um, is never, you know has never really felt like the team uh, has the proper urgency when it comes to uh, the offseason. And when they do, it's moves like the Cano-Diaz trade that ends up backfiring greatly. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it never has felt, and I, you know, I'm stating the obvious here, but it's never felt like the Wolfons have the correct pulse of the franchise. Yeah, you know, like so many corporations, they always seem to be uh, eight steps behind what they really should be doing, uh, you know. So I, I, I'm i not going to go to Mike because I know we'll really go down the rabbit hole. Sorry, Mike. Let's go to number uniform number 39. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> we, we have a lot of interesting names here, folks. There's, there's, speak, speaking of rabbit holes, uh, as well as the Omar Minai era, um, I'm seeing some names, and uh, let's start with with you, Jacob. If there's any names that you'd like to to take a take a poke at, yeah. Um, well, so obviously there's the uh, the elephant in the room, Mr. Edwin Diaz, um, but not going to go there. Um, the the one name that stuck out to me uh, when quickly scrolling through the list of players to wear number 39 in that history. Um, Bobby Parnell, um, who is a really a staple of the back end of the Mets bullpen for uh, the early 2010s. Um, and he was very good. Um, you, you know, when I, before I went to look at his stats, I, I thought, and just in my mind, I thought he was the closer for a longer period of time. It was really only 2013 where he had established himself as the, uh, the primary closer um, because in the, in the prior years, the Mets had gone through uh, K-Rod and uh, Fr- Frank Francisco, if you 
if you uh, remember that experience. Um, but from uh, 2010 to 2013, Bobby Parnell was uh, very good, uh, 2.79 ERA over those four years, um, and then got injured and pitched an unopening day in 2014, which was that was the, uh, the Colin Calgill Grand Slam uh, opening day in 2014. Um, got hurt, needed Tommy John surgery, uh, came back in 2015, had an ERA in the sixes, um, and then was never heard from again except for six games with Detroit in 2016. But, um, yeah, Bobby Parnell was kind of a, a guy that was just uh, always around and, and always pitched pretty well. Um, definitely always made it interesting, but uh, got the job done um, in those, you know, dark years of, of 09, 10, 11, uh, 12, 13. Rich, you know, it, it it's rare that you'll look at this list and see 2008 to 2015. That is a solid chunk of Mets time to be number 39. Um and and he's right. Jacob's right. Bobby Parnell was very good. 2.79 ERA, fantastic. But I feel like Bobby Parnell is a perfect representation of the very good, not great, marketed marketing that that the Mets put on us. That that you know, it it feels it still feels like a better reliever would have gotten the Mets over the hump in certain years, like a 2012 or a 2014. That's like when, that's what I think when I see this name, Bobby Parnell on number 39. Yeah. I mean, to me, Bobby Parnell wasn't in the conversation as an elite closer, not even close. He was that guy who, you know, you're, you're a non competing team you know, you're a rebuilding team and he's your closer and he, he is generally effective. Okay, fine. You know, no problem with that. Um, but, you know, if you're the 2015 Mets and you're coming down the stretch in Washington, um, you know, playing that critical series on Labor Day weekend or just after Labor Day, do you want Bobby Bobby Parnell closing those games? I I don't think you do. I mean, I I never trusted him as far as I could throw him. Um, But, again, on a bad team, he was an effective closer. So that's that's what I think of when I think of Bobby Parnell. Mike, uh, if you want to – Start with Bobby Purnell and then segue to any names that you that pop out to you in those Bobby Parnell had a fan in me. Uh, it was just one of those guys I stuck behind. Uh, you know, unfortunate the way his career ended, you know, with injury and whatnot. Uh, but he definitely had a fan in me. I want to give a shout-out to Vic Darensburg. Somebody retweeted that on our, po- uh, on our tweet for the show this evening. So whoever did that, props to you. <laughs> he appeared in probably, uh, I think, all of five games for the Mets. Uh, what? What year was that? Uh, let me look very quickly. 2004. Uh, Gary Gentry. You know, let's go back to the Miracle Mets, 1969. 1969 was probably his best year as a Met. Awesome games. Uh, you know, Underrated in, in, in Mets history as far as I'm concerned. And there's an interesting name here, Nino Espinosa. You know, when you're that young, back in the 70s, people can be very impressionable upon kids. And, uh, you know, Nino Espinosa was given every indication he was going to be a very, very good pitcher. Uh, but the Mets were spiraling, spiraling out of control in the late 70s. He got 
traded to the Phillies in uh, the massive purge of talent from the, from the from the from the Mets organization. Otherwise, I'll leave the rest to you guys. All right, can I jump in with one? Rich? Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna. Are you gonna go, Doug Sisk, Rich? I totally am. I, you read my mind. Doug Sisk was a guy who, and for the older fans out there, had Steve Blast disease. You know, I mean, Doug Sisk could not throw a strike. He um, he had a, an incredible heavy sinker, to a point where. At very rare moments, you would think to yourself, the 1984 season, when he was just coming up, the Mets have the next Bruce Suter. This guy throws a you know, mid-90s sinker that drops out of sight. This is going to be great. But then the problem was, like Steve Blass, he just could not get the ball over the, over the plate. He, no matter what he did, he could not throw a strike. And it got to a point where... He was on the 86 team, but he wasn't going to sniff the postseason. He wasn't about to pitch. And, um, and it's just amazing how he, he had such talent, such movement on his ball, but he never amounted to anything because unlike Bruce Suter, who was able to disguise it as a strike, Sisk could never do that. You know, he would, he would miss by copious amounts, and, uh, and therefore he was ineffective. But but Sis gave us some Mike. You probably remember him, or or maybe that was when you were in the military. But no, uh, I remember well. Sis gave us you know some some moments where we thought we really had an electric closer, but then ninety percent of the time he just could not get the ball over the plate. They, they speak of pitchers who have absolutely no clue where that ball is going once it leaves their hands. He was one of them. He totally was. I mean, like I. I I don't know how fast I could pitch, but, like, the, the, the few times that I have, like, I think, like, after a few reps, like, you figure out how to aim. How, but, but, well, aim's a bad word because they do speak of, like, oh, he's aiming, he's aiming. But, I mean, finding the target and putting it there. And, and some pitchers just, <laughs> you know, like, wild thing, you know, you, you're, uh, you're going to watch him uh, be just a bit outside. So... Uh, you know, it it is remarkable this list because guys, there there's some names that like aren't necessarily affiliated primarily with the number thirty nine. Uh, Hubie Brooks is one of them. Uh, Jeff Kent's another. Um, Benny Agbayani. Uh, Roberto. Well, and Pedro Feliciano. I'll go to Roberto Hernandez in a second because he's an interesting subject on here. Um, uh. You know, I'll, Jerry Blevins, give a little shout-out to Jerry Blevins. Uh, he, uh, you know, unfortunately could not really be a part of 2005, even though he was, like, he still made an indelible impression on both the Mets fan base as well as New York in general. And I think New York made an indelible impression on him in 2015, even though he was only in a few games. Uh, and then it carried over into 2016. He had a lot of success with the, the Mets. So a little shout-out to Jerry Blevins. But, um, guys, you know, seeing Roberto Hernandez's name on here, he was a part of the 2005 squad. And then seeing him back here in 2006, you know that that's because of the Juaner Sanchez taxi incident. And uh, that also brought Oliver Perez into our lives. Uh, Mike, if you, let's start with you. Pass on me. <laughs> <laughs> Rich, on me. same same response. 
Well, um, don't go out for fast food at 2 in the morning in Miami. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, but, um, but yeah, Roberto Hernandez, I mean, I, I actually liked him. I really did. Um, I didn't like the circumstances under which he got got here, you know, with Ali because of Sanchez's injury and all of that. But um, I might be biased to him because he's a UConn product. But um, but anyway, he, uh, yeah, you know, he, um, Roberto, he, he came here late in his career. He was effective, you know, did what they asked him to do. But, yeah, he's one of those, he's guilty by association, right? So, yeah, that, that, that's my take on it. And, of course, he's tied to Ali Perez, so. Um, yeah, poor, poor Roberto Hernandez, you know, he's guilty by association on a couple of ends, and the guy just came to the Mets and tried to do a job, right? I, I, I do know that he was um, uh, a regular at Rudy's Bar and Grill and gave them a, a signed, like, 2006, uh, 2005, uh, Jesus, 2006, like, National League East champion jersey from like right after i think he might have even gone to rudy's bar and grill right afterwards uh, the owner was telling me a story once so uh roberto hernandez seemed to enjoy new york and new york seemed to enjoy him so shout out to roberto hernandez wherever you may be nobody wants to take kelvin Torre torbe going once going twice Okay. <laughs> Just always seemed like one of those names that that seems to bring up ire of uh, the Mets fan. But uh, guys, uh, uh, without further ado, if we are we done with number thirty nine, Jacob? You got anybody else? Uh, the only other name, and unfortunately, <laughs> the the pre two thousands names are are only are only names to me, but um. The uh, the only other name that that really stood out to me was uh, Claudio Vargas in 2008, who uh, pitched in 11 games, made four starts. The only reason that name uh, sticks with me is because he started game two of a doubleheader on my birthday in 2008 uh, when I was eight years turning eight years old, uh, and I was happy to watch two Jesus. two baseball games Jesus. that day. So <laughs> there you go. I just don't have any memory of Claudio Vargas starting four games in 2008. <laughs> Rich. Yeah, I mean, as I look at the list, it's um, I'm trying to come up with anybody, you know, from my, my distant past that I can make a, a comment on. And I think we, we've hit all the big ones, right? I mean, you've got um, – well, Dan Wheeler, I always liked. He's a guy. He was on a terrible 2003 team. He actually was was, I believe, their best reliever statistically. Um, as I, you know, Mike already touched on Nino Espinoza, who uh, gave us Richie Hebner, and that was a bad thing. Um, let's see who else on here. Yeah, we we've hit them all. You know, actually, we haven't hit the obvious one, boys. We haven't hit Edwin Diaz, and um, and so. You know, I'll I'll say this about Edwin Diaz. I, I like the fact that Beltron is talking him up, saying he thinks he's going to have a turnaround year and a great year. Um, I'm reasonably hopeful, you know, reasonably uh, confident, I should say, and hopeful that the Mets don't trade him. I think trading him now would be insanely stupid. Uh, you'd be selling him for five cents on the dollar, and the guy has a great arm, and a, he had a horrific year. We all know that. The talent is there. If Beltron comes in and has confidence in him and, you know, builds him up a little bit and, um, and let this kid do what he did for the 
for the Mariners in, in 2018. Let, let, give him a chance. So I am an Edwin Diaz fan, and I know I'm probably getting people throwing things at me virtually here, but I, I love his stuff. I don't like what he did last year, of course. I love his arm, I love his stuff, and I think with some coddling and some proper mentoring, I think we can get it back. So that's my 39, current day, very current. I think you're right about Edwin Diaz. I mean, how can you give up on the kid? You're right about your, you know, equivalent five cents on the dollar, you know, equivalent, equating, excuse me. Um, And let's just remember that he had four bad months, and they – to, you know, they fucked around with him with that rain game. I will always point to the rain game. And he was starting to trend downward before that. But that really put him over the edge to the point that he was just basically at the yips, if you will. Um, so I, I, I definitely don't think you have to – oh, he could never – he could never uh, – he'll never succeed in New York. I'll hang up and listen. Anyway. Um <laughs> Mike, do you got anybody? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with Rich. Uh, he gave up an awful lot of home runs. He really did. And I love the term, you know, cement mixer. His slider was a cement mixer. That's a matter of an adjustment. Somebody just needs to, you know, figure that out, and I think he'll be just fine. That's all I'll say. I agree. So I think we got to give number thirty-nine to Gary Gentry. Um, everybody else is underwhelming. He is a world champion. And um, to tease a little bit of our next number episode, we got some some pretty infamous people on this list, as well as some uh, some fan favorites. So I look forward to number forty. Please come back again. Uh, and without further ado, we will segue over to the last word of a Metsian podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to uh, Max and thanks to Sam for calling in tonight. That was a thrill. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, without further ado, we're going to send it over to, uh, uh, for the last word, not only for the last word, but also Mr. Uh, Jacob Resnick. I didn't do this at the beginning and, and shame on me for not doing a shameless plug for you, sir. What, what go ahead with your shameless plug, please. Oh, well, shamelessly, I will say that, you know, the, the listeners can follow me on Twitter at Jacob underscore Resnick, R-E-S-N-I-C-K. Um, looking forward to uh, an off season of trying to <laughs> find content to, to push out there as we hit the winter months. And, and hopefully the, the Mets are, are providing us with something to, to talk about. Um, no real, uh, Nothing really groundbreaking to, uh, to to say for my final word, but um, you know, if, if this is the last time I'm talking to you guys for the off season, I'm uh, looking forward to uh, the team taking the next step in in 2020 and uh, hopefully kicking off the uh, the decade on the right foot. We appreciate you as always coming to join us on the Metsian podcast, Jacob, and uh, maybe possibly we can get you back to uh, recollect the entire decade before the uh, the the decade uh, changes to a new. Uh, uh, so we'll, we'll discuss that at a, a later date. Thank you. Um, Rich, yeah. shameless plug and last word. 
Well, uh, this is my extent of social media at the moment, is this podcast and, of course, my Twitter handle, which is at Mets Killing Me. Uh, but my final word for today is the same one as it was on our last show. Antsy. I'm very antsy uh, to see what the Mets are going to do. Um, that antsiness has been exacerbated by the Braves being very active in the offseason, uh, signing Martin, uh, bringing TDA in um, we just, uh, for two years. We just saw that uh, a couple hours ago. So teams are making moves. You know, we, we touched earlier on Grandal. Um, so the Mets have done nothing except Chase and Shreve. And, you know, all joking aside, that's not enough. And I know it's very early in the offseason. I totally get that. But I'm antsy. I want to see them. I want to see what they're going to do. Are they going to go down the free agent route? Are they going to do the trade route? Um, are they all in? Uh, I, I think that's still a question mark. I certainly hope so. But, yeah, but I'm, I'm even more antsy than I was uh, about a week ago. I hear that. Thanks, Rich. Uh, Mike, shameless plug and last word. Shameless plug. Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. That's all you need to know about that. Do some homework. Uh, final word. You know, we've done a lot of talking. <laughs> we've done a lot of talking about minor league baseball and, and you know, their, their relation, long relationship with minor league baseball. We've talked about a generation lost. I will simply put it this way. I think had Bartlett Giamatti not passed away and the owners not colluded to oust Faye Vincent, we'd be having a different, a very, very different conversation today. Uh, like I said, rather than electing a fellow owner into the office of commissioner, because to me, Rob, Ma- Rob Manfred, uh, it was just an apple off the selling tree, uh, you know. So I think they're continuing, continuing along this path. Uh, and, and Sam, you were the one who, you know, spoke of where this game is headed. Uh, and because of this particular man in office and, and where he comes from and from whom he comes from under, uh, uh, I'm sadly coming up with a bleak picture of the future of baseball. My name is Sam Maxwell. I am the converted Mets fan. You can find me at the underscore Sam Maxwell on Twitter and uh, at this podcast. And we're so thankful for you to be listening to a Metsian podcast. And um, my last word, fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you if you're young at heart. I think that's basically the theme, as off-key as I might have been at the end there, of our podcast. Youth, young at heart, you do keep the folks who, who watch this game, who have been a part of the game since their youth, young at heart. You keep them there, and you keep them coming back because it reminds them of their, their youth, and it reminds them to feel young, to, to be hopeful. Um, and whether or not you can necessarily recreate the way that the older generation got involved in this game with the new young generation, you have to try to figure out how to do it in a better way than you have been. Um, I think sometimes uh, some things like uh, Cespedes, Family Barbecue, 
uh, cut for, um, and just general blogging the way we do it. I mean, we, we did we basically talked to the people who called in. One, I believe, was most likely a teenager, although Max will talk uh, on, on Twitter as to exactly whether you're out of high school yet. Um, and we also talked to somebody who was a part of the 1969 generation tonight. So it's right there. We saw the two extremes of people who can be into this game. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that baseball won't continue to not only lose fans but be stagnant. They could grow this sport. Baseball is exciting and, and, and does drive a lot of the sports conversation at many points during the season. A soap opera, like Rich called it. That is a great word because you are in there day in, day out, paying attention. And sometimes you are paying attention to the soap opera off the field as much as you are paying attention to the soap opera on it with our New York Metsies. So, you know, they have to figure out some way, somehow, for it not to just be these isolated incidences when it comes to the youth and getting the fans to come watch baseball. Somehow, some way, they have to figure it out. And it can't just be from thinking that they're chopping off time here and there with, with the way they've been trying to implement it. You know, how about you stop bringing out a black box for replay and wasting two to five minutes of my time when we all have already seen that it's clearly out or safe? How about you just get a fifth umpire in there with the money that you save with consolidating these minor leagues and you get a fifth umpire in all 15 ballparks or however many, I believe it should be 15 games a night, uh, to, to immediately make a, a determination less than a minute, less than 45 seconds you can get this done. Why they don't have iPads themselves on the field, just pull out these fancy, crazy iPhones that will immediately have an HD zoomed image of exactly where the glove was and exactly where the ball was and exactly where the hand was. You can get this done. This is crazy that I have been saying this for five to ten years, however long replay's been around. Luckily, right after, we got a no-hitter out of the second. But anyway, that's how you keep the youth. If they think it's boring, well, those replays are really going to make it even more boring than the fact that they can't pay attention to the strategy the pitcher and the hitter are going through to face each other. Figure it out. You can figure this out. It's not my job. It's above my pay grade. But you know what? We threw out some pretty solid ideas throughout the entire night. So figure this out. 2020, here we come. And without further ado, thank you again for listening to a Metzian podcast. We will catch you next time. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And, Mike, how is the only way we can finish this podcast? Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets, Mets everybody. Let's go Mets, everybody. Good night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.